It isn't May, is it, Andrew? It's not May. It's September. September 2022, Keith. The first date in September for that was the week. The show about the week in technology brought to you jointly by That Was The Week's Keith Tier and me, Andrew Keen from Keen On Keith. It's cool in San Francisco. How hot is it in Palo Alto at the moment? Uh, it's pretty hot, I would say. Um, I sit here in my home office most days and see blue skies. And uh, I have to open the door in the mornings to let some cool air in. And then it's too hot in the afternoon. I have to close it. It's definitely heating up. There was up. a piece uh, in one of the dailies this morning. I'm not sure if it was the Washington Post or the New York Times about San Francisco now selling itself as the cool city in summer with global warming. Global warming being one of the themes of uh, our tech week, Keith. How is global warming changing tech? How is it changing valuations and innovation? Well, indirectly, I mean, it, global warming itself is, is uh, it's interesting. I had a visitor last night, a Japanese friend of mine, Ikuo Hirashi. Um, Ikuo runs Infarm in Japan and is here doing... Um, a class at plug and play for Japanese emerging. Yeah, and let's just remind ourselves because not everyone, Keith, knows what Infarm is. Infarm is a very successful vertical farming company that I was one of the first investors in. Um, and they have a Japanese operation. Uh, anyway, he told me that um, Japan has had massive flooding this summer, which is not normal for, for Japan. And so Everyone, everyone around the world, the UK has had the hottest, uh, I think it's the second hottest summer on record, but it went up into in this in Celsius. Right. In, in Pakistan, a third of all the land in Pakistan is flooded. So the only place that seems to uh, be in another world, as always, is San Francisco. So uh, how is this changing tech, though? And uh, EVs and solar solar panels and, and the rest of the innovation around um, fighting global warming. Yeah, well, that's so that's the theme of this week's newsletter. There was a couple of uh, a couple of articles caught my attention. The, the first is called "The Long Road to American-Made EVs," um, and it includes. Um, uh, if I take away this screen, and can you have found a more Maoist photo, Keith? Can we go back to that photo? You know, China is not really Maoist anymore, so I wanted well, to find... Well, that, that young lady looks like uh, she's looking at Chairman Mao on her iPhone. When, in fact, she's probably looking at some social media site. And, and, no doubt. And... TikTok probably is an owner in TikTok. China rising. We've heard that one before. But is its rising very much bound up now with electronic vehicles and solar? Well, that, that's, that's the, 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 the story of these two articles. Um, China Rising is basically um, uh, two articles. The first one is uh, the uh, American-made EVs. This is triggered by the new laws that uh, Biden has gotten through on the Inflation Act, which yeah. extend the credit on electric vehicles uh, through to the end of 2030. However, the vehicles have to be assembled in the USA, which most of them are not. And this is a story which um, then Benedict, Benedict Evans got in on the act and he did this graph 
which is um, really telling. Um, almost 30% of Chinese car sales are either plug-in hybrids or electric. Here in the US, it's in single digit percent despite Tesla. So it's really about how uh, the US is not an innovator when it comes to electric vehicles. Yeah, and, and, Be and Benedict Evans tweet gradually then suddenly, it's certainly a remix of something someone wrote about, I think it was uh, Fitzgerald about how you go bankrupt. Uh, but um, it's also about innovation and startups and how the economy gradually changes and then suddenly and then everything looks inevitable when it wasn't before. Yeah, well, well, then then the other thing is uh, Visual Capitalist, which is one of my go to places, did a review of where it broke uh, solar panels down into the five elements. And it looked at uh, in those elements, who is dominant? And, you know, the numbers are staggering. I don't see, I don't see many people except for China. <laughs> exactly. Um, in Polis, US, uh, for those people who are just listening, Polysilicon, China dominates up almost 80%. Wafers, China dominates 96%. Cells, China dominates 85%. Modules, China dominates 75%. Does this point to the um, superiority of the Japanese technocratic model for innovation, Keith? No, no, I, I just think it points to the fact that all societies, when they reach modernity, um, get the capability to devote a lot of resources to R&D. And, and China is an R&D driven society now because it's rich and that people need to understand that China is rich and uh, the people are getting wealthier. Ownership of vehicles is now normal it's the largest car market in the world even for most american manufacturers and as you get rich and you do r d you innovate and, but it's, and isn't so it important to know particularly given the anti-chinese nature of a lot of the american press and media that china isn't russia it's not run by kleptocrats that xi may be authoritarian in some ways but most uh, of the money is being reinvested in China. It's not going into Swiss bank accounts. Correct. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's very dangerous to be corrupt in China because the leadership is so anti-corruption. And in that sense, they're, they're more of a model of um, kind of, let's call it um, ethical Marxism, um, that, that core of Marxism, which, set, which wants the world to be a good place. Uh, they they believe in the world being a good place for humans. Um, however, it's a one-party state, and so there's all kinds of negatives. You've always but been it, a little bit of a a, a closet authoritarian, Keith. <laughs> Not even in my own house, Andrew. I'm I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm inviting you out of the closet. You like technocracy. It's it's more suitable for innovation than democracy, isn't it? Well, I, um, let's put it in the negative. I don't like bureaucratic government getting in the way of progress. And I don't believe governments, even autocratic ones that are well-intentioned, uh, can be as good as just normal human beings um, doing R&D and in innovating. So neither, democ neither democracies nor autocracies are good innovators. Um, so let, let's compare head-on the two two areas of innovation between China and the US. Um, 
uh, electronic vehicles and the solar panel market. How do the U.S. and China compare at the moment? Um, well, Ch Ch China mass produces solar panels for the world, and the U.S. doesn't. Uh, first, solar is a U.S. company, and then um, Tesla has Solar City, which is now part of Tesla. And you know, within the U.S., you will see both first solar and solar city panels. I have solar city panels on my house, but the actual panels are from Asia. Uh, solar city doesn't make the panels; they they, they buy them. Uh, and, and is the Biden this new Biden bill on rewarding people who invest in solar panels or EVs? Does that punish you as somebody now who has solar panels on his roof? from China? Do you not get the subsidy? Well, I no, I'm fine because I did mine a few years ago and I did get the subsidy. And yours came uh, through Tesla. So if, if Tesla's importing panels from China... All, all over Asia, actually. They're, I think mine are Panasonic panels. So do you still get, the, uh, you still get the, um, the subsidy? Yeah, yeah, but not anymore. But not with the EVs, right? With the EVs, if if the part of the EV is is manufactured uh, out of the U.S., you're not getting a subsidy. This year you do. So I, I have um, a Ford manufactured in Mexico, and a Mercedes manufactured in Germany, and I did get the subsidy for both. And and I used to have a Kia manufactured in Korea, and I did get the subsidy for that. So, um, uh, but but next year that won't be true. Next year the new bill removes the subsidies unless it's U.S manufactured uh, uh, batteries, and unless it's U.S. assembled cars, only assembled, the parts can come from anywhere. Um, so that's going to restrict a lot of the uh, a lot of so stuff. So is the U.S. essentially losing this war with China in, in terms of innovation? In, in some areas, decisively. In other areas, not. Uh, like semiconductors, the U.S. is still ahead. But, you know, um, although Taiwan is pretty good as well on semiconductors but for the most part it's arm uh, uh, you know uh, designs manufactured uh, here in the US by Qualcomm or by Apple sometimes manufactured elsewhere um, sometimes assembled elsewhere like when you buy a new Apple laptop it comes from China uh, even though it's designed in America as they say um, it isn't built in America mostly so that's to do with the division of labor. You know, the world market is fully integrated. And in a sense, there are no such thing as nation states when it comes to building things and making things and selling things. Um, nation states are really political institutions, not economic institutions, but they tax. So they get their money from tax. And if China is building most of the world's stuff, the Chinese government's going to get tax uh, from the work that goes on. And it's going to be able to afford to build new roads, high-speed trains, and all the things that so it's overall, doing. overall, the news this week on the innovation front is good for China and not so good for the United States. Is that a fair conclusion? I think so. And in the long run, you know, the U.S. is no longer number one in the world. That's what I write about in the editorial. How I've heard talk... that one before. I think we'll be hearing that many more times over the next few years. What about Essays of the Week, Keith? Interesting one from your friend O'Malik. Um, yeah. some Apple weaknesses. We usually focus on Apple strengths, but this week it's their weaknesses. Yeah, Essays of the Week is um, 
uh, one of my favorite actions now. It's new. We didn't used to do it before. But what Ohm writes about is he calls it Apple's missing augmented intelligence. And um, he, he basically contrasts how excited he is by the new um, MacBook Air M2, contrasted with how stupid Siri is and how behind um, Google and Amazon, Apple's intelligent assistant is. And, uh, and I don't know if you use Siri, but it is completely true. He's right. Um, uh, yeah. he, his particular gripe is that his Indian English isn't understood by Siri. So it's, a, it's, it's the exact reverse of Amazon and particularly Google. These are companies that are very good on the software, particularly the AI software, and terrible with the hardware. Exactly. Who'd want, if you have, I don't know if you've got a Kindle, but, you know, reading a book on the iPad mini versus the Kindle is like night and day. Or uh, why would you want a Chromebook when you could get uh, one of Mac the, the MacBook Airs that Ohm wrote that piece on? Yeah. I, the only exception really is Apple, is Amazon's Fire TV, which is quite good. And Google's uh, Google TV Chromecast dongle so do you here. think and you and um do you think that apple can really turn it around do you think they even want to turn it around does it matter to them i think it's a cultural thing Com companies have a dna yeah and apple apple's dna is not you know artificial intelligence except when it comes to things like cameras so they're very good at artificial intelligence with hardware uh, the photos on the iphone uh, benefit from that massively but they're really not good at it when it comes to just pure software. So their search experience isn't that great. Their Siri experience isn't that great. Um, you know, the notification experience on the iPhone, um, I like notifications, but they do a really bad job of filtering and organizing them uh, to what to my interests. So they're just not good at that stuff. And it's, it's the DNA. Well, I, they I think that's good because otherwise, we joked last week about having an Apple house or an Apple city or an Apple state. Otherwise, those might become realities. The fact they're not very good at augmented intelligence is, is good news, probably, for most of us. Uh, there's some Y Combinator news, which is not associated with your heartthrob, uh, Paul Graham. No, although Paul Graham did... Um, actually, it's a good point. I don't know if I saw him welcome Gary Tan in. You know what? Why I don't know if Paul Graham's very good at smiling. No, he can smile. I've seen him with his kids at breakfast at Joni's, and he smiles a lot. Um, <laughs> but that said, I think there's a story about YC that if we had really good journalists would come out. Um, Jeff Ralston's been replaced as CEO by Gary Tan, yeah. and before that, Jeff Ralston replaced Sam Altman, and before that, Sam Altman replaced Paul Graham, and. As these replacements have happened, why Combinator has changed from a company that did, you know, maybe 40 or 50 companies per demo day to, to one that now does 400. And today, this, this week's news is really all positive. Gary Tan's taken over. It's all wonderful. Uh, the, the, the Financial Times, to its credit, talks about YC having to adjust its model back towards a smaller number. And I think behind the scenes, there are conflicts that are getting resolved through leadership change. But we never hear of women leaders. I mean, they seem to specialize in white men. Well, Gary's not really white, pure white, is he? He's Asian. Uh. So 
um, I don't know. I, I I don't know about ethnic lines anymore. Uh, they seem to be blurred, just like sexual lines. But I, I think he doesn't qualify. My, my as... biggest issue with Gary Tan is why there are why are there two R's in his name. Gary always has two R's. Where's the, when have you ever seen a guy with one R? Oh. Well, <laughs> Gary Gary Tan is running YC. I mean, you uh, Y Combinator doesn't fundamentally change anything, though, does it? Well, Y Combinator is is quite an anima. I can tell you, it, it has uh, it it, it uh, I I do a lot of stats at Single Rank on investors, and um, YC is one of them. Uh, and I was looking this week, it's done something like 6,000 rounds of financing over the last five years, 6,000 rounds. It's got, you know, almost 150 unicorns came out of that. Uh, and uh, uh, however, by the way, it, it, it's uh, rounds to unicorn ratio is one of the lowest. In other words, it, it's not very productive because it does so many investments and other, is, other it, people, uh, is it getting better or worse at worse unicorns? It's getting worse. Um, I mean, everyone wants to be Wycom. When they started, they invented the space, and now everyone wants to be like them, right? Correct. So, uh, and they are awesome. They're, I mean, it, nothing I'm saying should detract from the fact that they their model for themselves works very, very well. I think if you're an entrepreneur. You now give up seven percent of your company for I think it's one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. That is that is a major bite into the pie for a small amount of money. Um, however, most of it's lost. You know, a huge percentage of that money is lost. Well, that's um, and we'll we'll come to that with the tweet of the week. That's the nature of things if you're in your business. Um, another interesting essay from your friend Thomas Tungus on. Web3 apps, uh, Web3 is a little bit out of the news. What is a Web3 app? Um, well, funnily enough, his headline uh, uh, defies his, his text. But uh, a Web3 app, sometimes thought, called a DAP, a distributed app, um, uh, is, is something built on top of what he calls an L1 blockchain, a which stands for layer one. And the way the blockchain works is you have blockchains, which is called layer one. Bitcoin is one of those. Ethereum is one of those. Solana is one of those. There's a bunch of them. And then you, you have kind of software and logic, which is layer two. Uh, and apps sit there. And up until now, most of the focus in blockchain has been on layer one which kind of has unknown promise. He writes about how the, the valuation of the layer one companies, by the way, is the only valuations that have survived this correction. They're still very highly valued compared to revenue because the promise is so high. Yeah. Um, and, he's, and he makes the point that he doesn't think that apps, are, uh, even despite the title, he doesn't think apps are going to dominate this year. He thinks layer one uh, will continue to dominate. Uh, yeah, I suspect Web3 is like, um, is like EVs gradually and then suddenly. I think that it's all very slow until it becomes inevitable. Cloudflare, yeah. Cloudflare is in the news, Keith. What's interesting about Cloudflare this week? Um, Cloudflare is um, 
came under fire. Just a reminder from, of who and what they are. What is Cloudflare? Cl Cloudflare is a company started by Matthew Prince and Michelle Zatlin. Um, they they uh, launched at TechCrunch Disrupt. I was actually the mentor to them. Uh, we uh, When TechCrunch Disrupt happens, all the companies go to Sequoia Capital and sit in a room for a few days. And you mentor people as to how to tell their story. And Cloudflare is a deep network company. It basically sits in the background running things like the domain name system and various security things for you. So, so it's it, part of the plumbing. It's deep plumbing. It's deep plumbing and it's cloud-based deep plumbing. Uh, so you don't have to put a firewall or a router inside your, your yeah. house. Your anyway, it's very, very, very large. About a third of the internet goes through Cloudflare now. Um, and they came under fire this week because they host a lot of, uh, they don't really host the sites, but they run services for sites which represent far-right ideas. And uh, the demand was that they should turn off services to those. So even the, uh, the deep plumbing can be political. Right. And to their credit, Matthew and Michelle are absolutists on the right to publish. Uh, so they they wrote um, uh, a response explaining why they will not do that. They even self-criticized a few. How's their what's their justification for what they would publish cannibal sites or pedophile sites? They, they publish their terms and conditions, which basically say if you're breaking the law, uh, either clearly, for example, child pornography, or if. Uh, you lose a court case and the ruling is the site must be taken down, then they'll do it. Yeah. Other than that, they do not do not want to be decision makers about where the line is. Yeah. Uh, well, they're probably in that sense. I'm not sure if they're morally correct, but they are correct in a practical sense. Because look at the, the mess at Twitter. Yeah. And the minute, well, the minute you start editorializing, there's no end to it. I mean, and, and by the way, the line moves all the time because... On the left, you've got what, what are generally being characterized as the woke left. On the right, you've got the nationalist white supremacists. And, you know, there's there's kind of lines as you come closer to the middle, and that line changes all the time. So if the minute you decide to editorialize, there's no end to it. And, and the best thing is to let society deal with what is okay and what isn't, and just run a service. Well, even the companies that are in the business of servicing thinking and free thought are in trouble. There's some bad news on the Substack front. Usually, Keith, you're in love with Substack and there's always good news. But this week, they're reining in their cash and perks for writers. Surprise, surprise. I think I've been predicting that one for a while. That was inevitable, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. I mean, there's only, there's only so much money you can use to bootstrap an idea. There's only uh, so much money you can throw at, um, I don't know, who's famous on Substack? Salman Rushdie. Uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, Andrew Sullivan. Um, yeah, I mean, Sullivan makes money anyway. I don't know why he's getting any perks. Barry Weiss. Barry um, Weiss should be banned. If I, if, if I had a site, I'd ban her. <laughs> but that doesn't reflect well on me, of course. So what's well, happening with Substack? So they're retrenching. They're, they're toast, Keith. You wouldn't admit it, but they are. They're like medium. They're, they'll be medium in two years. There's nothing much there, in my view. 
I think I well put it this way: I don't want that to be true. There is, it well, is nor do I, but it's still a reality. I think I think well, let's talk about that for a bit. I do think there's a chance you're right, but I hope you're wrong. And the reason I hope you're wrong is, I want it to be possible for creative talent to earn a living by producing things for other people. Um, and and yeah, you know, uh, in your your life, that's a lot of of why you're able to survive because you've successfully figured out a way to do that. Yeah, but Substack, Substack are not helping that economy. In the old days, I used to pay a marketing platform to send out my weekly piece. Now I do it for free on Substack. I don't pay them anything. They don't get any money back from me. I'm not yeah. wasting my time trying to get money out of my readers. Um, I, I just, do, you, do you pay for anything on Substack? Do you subscribe? No, to I anything? don't pay a penny or for anything on Substack. So I'm a free rider and I'm sure there are many others who use Substack to simply distribute? You're doing that. You don't pay them anything. And I do actually. I pay. I pay for three newsletters, which is a total of about. Um, well, how can you pay for a free newsletter? What does that mean? No, they're not all free. You can you can decide that you can put subscriptions on them, and people do. And in in the case of three of them, I pay the subscription fee. You uh, oh, you so mean you pay to get, but you don't pay. This goes out on Substack. They're not paying you, and you're not paying them. No, but the way it Where works. Free riders. I mean, it's no, costing no. them something to put this stuff out. No, let me explain that. Um, I charge nine dollars a month for that was the week to people who choose to pay for it. Now, the written newsletter that comes out on a Thursday is free. But this video, which I put out on a Friday as a separate post, is only for paid subscribers. Now, I have 2,500 what I call paid subscribers. I, I gave them complimentary paid subscriptions for 12 months. So only about you know, a small number of them are actually paying me. Mm -hmm. I get, so I get from those paid subscribers, I think it's about three or $400 a year. Um, for that? But listen, for your, um, let me your finish. Big house in Palo Alto, right? Yeah, but wait. I also pay for Matt Taibbi and a couple of others about $300 a year. So that's $600 going through. Substack gets 10% of that. So they make their money from paid subscription. Yeah. I just don't. I, I don't think, I don't think it's a real economy. I don't think that it will work. Uh, but... We've had this conversation before. Certainly, Substack is in retreat, retrenchment, and a company that's with Substack in this retreat and retrenchment is Snap. They're laying off 20% of their employees. They are. It's about 1,000 employees. And uh, I mean, the only thing you wonder is, and I, I've seen this over and over again, is why would a company with an app need 6,000 employees anyway? Um, but they've been uh, out the news for a while. They, where, what, what's their place now in the sort of Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram ecosystem? Uh, they're still very strong, Andrew. I mean, uh, young people use Snap and Instagram. That, Snap. Uh, the point of Snap was it knew how to forget that it was defined by its ability to forget. 
right? Not anymore. Yeah, that was the starting point, but it very quickly evolved. And now it's a full service social media app with all kinds of, um, you know, it's probably the most innovative of them all because it, it, it introduces new features that then get copied. Uh, so it, it's of all of them, it's the most innovative. What is market cap, Snap? Uh, Snap's market cap. Good question. Let me, I don't carry that around in my head, but I can definitely check. Uh, snap, snap, snap. Here we go. $11.62 per share, market cap of $19 billion. Mm. And that's Sorry, way I'll down. Probably, someone will excuse the pun here. Snap them up. I'm guessing eventually they they're not a standalone company, are they? It's um, you know it's down 62 percent over a year. So 19 billion is a big number. I think we all agree with that. Yeah, well, it's not a big number to Facebook. Although uh, your friend uh, at the SEC uh, at, at the FCC probably wouldn't allow Mark Zuckerberg to acquire Snap. No, he wouldn't. They wouldn't. Maybe Apple should buy them uh, with their AI. What about Startup of the Week, Keith? It's not Snap and it's not Substack. They're the anti-startups of the week. Who's doing well this week? SeatGeek. SeatGeek. I don't know if you you ever used SeatGeek. It's actually quite good. You can get a seat to an event that's sold out. Um, So it's it's a bit like Ticketmaster as well. Uh, but uh, it's it's basically getting a seat at an event, and um, they were going to do a SPAC. Uh, anyone who watches this show regularly will know why that didn't happen. Um, and um, instead of doing a SPAC, they've raised two hundred thirty-eight million at a, a, a over a billion dollar pre-money valuation, um, yeah. and um, are staying private. So uh, Axel. Wellington Management are the two big names there on that list. So what so is, what is it? A platform that allows people to sell tickets to events. Is it a sort of Uber tout site? Um, uh, here it is. Uh, it, it also works for for events. And, you know, so basically uh, uh, the owner of a venue or a, or a performer can set up ticket sales through it as well. Well, you're avoiding my question, Keith. Is it for is, is it for Uber touts to make even more money and reselling tickets? Mostly not. That that is that is um, more done on StubHub. Yeah, so it's not like an Uber StubHub for stuff that's sold out. Correct. So, so if you know, it's sold out, why are the Seahawks or the Giants selling tickets because they're sold out? Well, what happens is now, in order to stop the touts, the teams themselves create marketplaces in tickets that want to resell. Okay, so there, it's more like it's a restricted marketplace. Yeah, but it also includes, you know, if, if you look at the prices here, they're all pretty reasonable. Yeah, but that's um, for U.S. soccer. I wouldn't. I would. Yeah, but it's, it's you still cheap. Pay me to watch that, would you? That's that's the model of. Keith, what about a, a startup which pays people to go to really boring things like U.S. soccer, church? <laughs> that How would it make money, Andrew? Well, the U.S. soccer pays because then they can fill their stadium. <laughs> Not going to happen. Would you, would you ever go to U.S. soccer? You know, I've gone to the... I mean, even I... that word is such a dumb word, so... Would you ever go and watch 
European the football in an American stadium played by two American teams? I have done that. I had t season tickets to the San Jose Earthquakes for uh, two seasons. And, and the soccer was terrible, but it was nice to get out of the house and spend a few hours. Did you hours do the wave? No, but I did have a scarf. <laughs> well, tweet of the week, finally, on a, on a, on a quiet week. Samir Kaji, um, who is um, a former Silicon Valley Bank employee, then went on to First Republic Bank and now runs um, uh, his, uh, his kind of crowdsourced um, fundraising for seed stage venture funds. Um, Samir posted this nice thread. Common themes of successful VCs I, I've observed. One, playing the game they can win and not getting moved into a game that plays into someone else's strength. So a specialism. Being okay with being on an island uh, against the consensus and being okay with being wrong. Realizing they're going to be wrong more than right and that is okay. Uh, are conviction-based but not stubborn and willing to be swayed. Constantly reinventing themselves. So when I read this, I thought, he understands me. And that's why I made it Tweet of the Week. It's not a fair, it's not the tweet of a VC, though. It's just saying what everybody else knows. Yeah, it's an observation from the outside. And he's not a VC. He, he provides money to VCs, but he's not a VC. But the constant reinvention, I think, is an important one. Can't stand yeah. still, can you, Keith? I, I did a talk and this week. as David Bowie said, time waits for no one. And it doesn't wait for us. And it... That was the week. It's gone now. September yeah. the 2nd, 2022. We'll be back on September 9th, Keith. And hopefully there'll be a bit more news. We won't talk about Substack or Snap or Paul Graham. There'll be some more substantial issues to talk about, like Elon Musk. Yep, yep. He did counter Sue Twitter again this week, but we didn't get to talk about it. I actually interviewed... Um, Tim Higgins, whose book about Musk and Twitter and Tesla just came out in, in paperback. He has an interesting book, interesting take on, on, on both on Tesla and Musk. Very good. Well, thank you, Andrew. And we'll see you all again next week. Have a great week. It's cold outside.